Alrighty, howdy, Austin Stone. It's good to see you all out here this evening. It is a total treat and an absolute privilege to be with you all. As I've been preparing um, for this for a few months and just thinking about it, it's not all I've been doing, I've been doing some other things as well, but as I've been thinking about it and as I've been praying for you and as I've been praying for me um, in preparation for this day, there's really been two big themes that I've been praying around. The first is I've been praying for supernatural gifts of interpretation to be bestowed upon you so that you can understand what I'm saying tonight. And so if you're confused, this is what English sounds like, all right? And so what I've realized is that you get English, and then you get American English, and then you get Texan American English, okay? And so I'm going to go quite slow, but we'll get through it quite quick as well. You might have to at some point just go like, I've got no idea what that means, but it sounds amazing, um, and just nod along, and just preach back at me a little bit if you don't mind, okay? The morning was terribly disappointing, but those people are, are, are nearly dead, um, and so I've heard that you guys are full of vibrance and energy, and so in South Africa, people preach back, and I'm going to need you to show, show me in some way, shape, or form that you're still with me, um, even just nod along, even if it doesn't make sense, just help me out, because... Uh, uh, this is my last opportunity to speak with you guys, and then I'm getting back on a compressed tube and flying back to the great city of Johannesburg. The, the second thing that I've been praying, though, is that in line with what Paul prays for the church in Rome, in Romans in chapter 1, that I would be some form of encouragement to you. I don't say that in pride, I say that in the humility. This church, the Austin Stone, has been a great source of encouragement to my faith and to the faith of many in my context. You may not know that, but, but, but the faithfulness of the Austin Stone kind of rings around the world. And you guys have been faithful to a zeal for Christ, a commitment to mission. You've been sending people to the nations. We've been recipients of that, and we've enjoyed that, and you've encouraged us a great deal. And I hope, just like Paul prays to, uh, when he's hoping to visit Rome, that his visit there would be, would be helpful to them. I pray that I'll be in some way helpful to you and be an encouragement to you as you've been to us. And so maybe before we get into the text tonight, let me encourage you just in this way. I've been in the U.S. for the last two weeks um, and so have seen um, some of the things that have been going down and, and some of the troubling things that have been taking place even this afternoon as we hear the troubling news of, of what happened in Baton Rouge. Uh, let, let me encourage you with a couple of things. Um, the, the, the first thing is that change is possible. Uh, God can change things that look completely broken, and God can change things that look beyond redemption. I'm a white South African, right? I was born when apartheid was at its height, and there were many days when people thought that thing could not be dismantled, that that injustice could not be torn down, but God had other plans, and He can change context and he can change societies and he does that by changing people's hearts and so change is possible please don't be fearful don't be timid change is possible it's going to take time it's going to take humility it's going to take conversations uncomfortable ones but change is possible the second thing i'll tell you is that the church is powerful and that the church has an opportunity to be increasingly powerful in this time and what I hear a lot of in the U.S. is kind of anxiety as the church is being pushed to the fringes of the conversation. But that excites me because the church has always flourished at the fringes. It's always been terrible in the center. It's flourished at the fringes. And the church has the promise of the one thing that the world deeply desires, and that's true diversity. But true diversity can never happen under the name of a nation or a flag. A nation by its nature pursues homogeny. What we desire is every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all united under a common king. 
And only the church has that. And that's what the world deeply desires. And if we would be less timid, and if we would trust in the promises of Christ more, then he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now think about that. Gates are not weapons. Gates are defense. We tend to think the world is attacking the church and that we're retreating into smaller and smaller huddles. That's not the way Jesus sees it. He sees hell trying to keep the church out. And the gates are trembling and it's retreating in the cities of the world as the gospel is proclaimed and as people press into difficult conversations and into difficult spaces with the good news of the gospel. I hope you believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against us and against the work of Christ in our cities, in our churches, and in our nations because it's true. And so I hope that that's an encouragement to you, that your hearts are stirred to faith by that. That's not just some dude with a lot of bluster who's jet lagged, who's just yelling about nothing. I'm a real believer in the power of the local church. I see it day in, day out. I see it in your midst. Guys, you've got a role to play. Your nation needs you. And so I hope you live out your faith and serve your king. And I hope the kingdom of God expands in the United States of America in this day and age as a result. If we're honest, the church throughout history hasn't done a great job of always living up to its mandate. Sometimes the gates of hell have kind of laughed at us. They haven't trembled. And one of the reasons for that is that we have a real habit of making simple things complicated. We don't so much have a problem understanding what the Bible says as much as we really have a problem struggling to do what it says we should do. And so what we do when we don't want to do what the Bible says we should do is we come up with more complicated ways to understand the Bible so that we don't have to do what it says we should do. I mean, Trip Lee spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty simple. Love God, love your neighbor. We go, hmm, define neighbor, right? Because it's a simple commandment, love your neighbor, but it sounds hard to do. It's easy to say, hard to do, because it depends who's in the neighbor camp, because some people aren't that lovely, right? You've met people, and you realize most people are deeply disappointing. And so you go, define neighbor. Who do I have to extend that to? And we complicate things a great deal, because we don't want to do that. One of the ways that the churches has made an overcomplicated issue out of a really simple instruction is with the mission and purpose of the church. Now, when I say church, I'm not talking primarily to your elders or to pastoral boards. I'm speaking to believers that make up this body. And so if you're a believer in Christ, regardless of how immature you are, you are the church. It is you. And so I'm speaking to you this evening. There is a purpose and a mission that every believer is supposed to live for, but we've overcomplicated it and therefore done none of it. We've overcomplicated and over-individualized the mission of every Christian on the planet. And that is to be on mission for Christ. And so we take this endeavor to be on mission and we make it into a complicated thing. We go, okay, mission sounds good. What that must mean is cross-cultural missionaries, okay? And so we come up with a name for them and we send them away to another context so that they can live in a radical way for Christ in a way that doesn't really bug our routines, okay? But they're the committed ones, they're the radical ones, and occasionally we'll let them come stand in our churches. If your church is anything like the church I grew up in, we'll let the missionaries come from Uzbekistan or Lagos or Azerbaijan, and they'll stand up here on stage, and they'll need the full stage because they've got a lot of kids because they've got nothing else to do in Azerbaijan, and so they'll start here, and then they've got nine others, right? And they're really poor because you don't pay, and so they're all dressed in what looks like curtains from an old motel, um, and they're all matching, and they're standing here looking really sad, telling you about the deep, dark, unreached people group of Azerbaijan, and what are you going to do about it? And our response is nothing. 
right? I'll take your fridge magnet and I'll pray for you occasionally. It's a big fridge magnet because a big family um, with all your kids named after Old Testament characters, okay? You've got Mephibosheth in there and Hezekiah and they're all lined up there on the fridge and you, you try to remember to pray for them and then you'll pay as well. No, I'll pay if I've got anything left after my skinny caramel macchiato, um, which means I won't have anything left. Then I'll pay a little bit to go fund the mission of God. Now, should we be sending missionaries to Azerbaijan? Yes. Should we be sending more? Yes. Should some of you in the room go? Yes. I don't know why you're here. Go. All right? And so that's clear. But, but what do we do with the rest of us? It can't just be that some of us form a cultural club that pays and prays and everyone else goes. Is that it? And so 10 years ago or so, maybe 15 years ago, the church woke up to this thing and said, okay, it's not just about sending missionaries cross-culturally. It's also about sending missionaries to the context in which we're in. Okay? Now that sounds simple, but we complicate everything and we know that people don't want to do it. And so the church established programs to be missional. And we took the simple instruction in the scripture and we made it a useless adjective for a bunch of things that was never supposed to describe. And so we got missional cappuccinos and missional wear and missional tattoos and missional mountain biking is a thing in Johannesburg. Okay, because that's an unreached people group, the mountain bikers. Um, and they, they're hard to reach because they've spent all their money on this strange device with dual suspension. My car's got four-piece suspension and goes much faster than your bicycle. And I don't have to wear ridiculously inappropriate tight clothing um, when, I, when I pursue that endeavor. So I've got a missional car. That's what I've got. And so we made missional about being hip. Right, so you had to have a fedora, and you had to have skinnies, and then you had to have skinnier skinnies, and then you had to have tapered trousers, and then the tapered trousers had to end mid-calf. Eventually, guys just going to be walking around in speedos, Um, and so that's where we're going. In order to be missional, you have to be hip. Well, what happens if you're not hip? I'm not hip. And when I prayed to God and I said, "Lord, send me to anywhere in the world, I'll plant a church," what I pictured was missional, hip. I wanted it to be in a city. I wanted it to be gritty. I wanted it to be amongst pips and prostitutes. I wanted it to be that. God sent me to Bryanston, which is the West Austin of Johannesburg. It is a nice, leafy suburb, okay, where people live in isolation from one another and occasionally wave across the road. Have I nailed it? Have I got it? Okay, good, brilliant. I drove through this afternoon. I was like, this is Bryanston. This is Bryanston of Austin. It's very, very nice. Everyone wants to live there so that we never, ever have to speak to anyone else ever again. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. God sent me to Bryanston where, where no one's tatted out, Guys don't wear skinnies, they wear pleated, what we call chinos, which you call khakis, which is a ridiculous word, all right? But <laughs> they wear them with pleats in them, okay? And, and they're all chartered accountants. And so I wanted to start like a tattoo ministry. They started like an Excel ministry. Um, and that was about as hip as they would get. So I had to go back to the scripture and say, well, I want to be a missional church, but all I've got is these suburban folk. And they're really good at paying, right? And they're really good at praying, but can't they get to play a little bit as well? Can't they get to be in on this mission of God as well? And so I started to study the New Testament and I said, Lord, what is this thing? What is the big idea of the church? What are we supposed to do with these people so that they don't just become consumers of religious goods and services, taking the offerings from a church they like and leaving the rest? How do we get these people excited about your work in the world? And there it is in the New Testament. My premise today is a simple one. It's so simple, I'm a simple guy. I'm a son of the African soil. I know it's strange to look at, but, I, but, I, but I'm, a, I'm a simple guy from that great continent. Here it is. Saved people are sent people. Everyone who is saved is simultaneously sent. To be saved by Jesus is to be invited by Jesus into his great mission in the world. 
So let's look quickly at, at some of Jesus' instruction to his dim-witted disciples in, in John 20 after he's been resurrected from the dead. And I've just got three verses and three simple points, and then I'm out of your hair. Your chances of you seeing me again are very, very low, unless God sends some of you to the accountants of Bryanston, which I'm praying for. All right. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected from the dead. And the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They've seen Jesus put to death. And so now they're fearful, they're in a gathering and, and, they're, and they're thinking, are we next? Jesus came and stood among them. Do you think this made their fear any better? No. I mean, he's very much dead and now he's in the room and the door is very much locked and no one recalls opening it. And here he stands amongst them. And so they must be freaking out. And so he says, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them again, now this is important. He didn't say to a subset of them. He says to all of the disciples, and they are Muppets of the highest order. Does that translate? No? Okay, so in South Africa, if you're a Muppet, you're kind of a struggler, all right? And so these guys weren't the best of the best. You've got some strugglers in there. But Jesus says to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And I can imagine them looking around the room going like, you got the wrong crew. And he's like, no, I'm sending you. You, not a subset of you. I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Just three observations. First one is this. Christians on mission, which should be every Christian because to be saved is to be sent. But Christians who get this missional impulse and live in this way, they know and they believe and they trust that they serve a God on mission. And so in order for me to get you to do something, I first gotta get you to do nothing and think about what God has done for you because that has to be the driving force that's gonna drive what you're gonna do. Otherwise, you're just gonna fall into Pharisaism and just an opportunity and, a, and, a, and an attempt to try win the favor of God. God himself is on mission and his mission was to get people like you. Now this is missiology 101, but it forms the basis for what it means to be a missional Christian. We are made in God's image and God himself is a community in the Trinity on mission. Jesus says the Father sent him. What a thought in the Trinity, the triune God, the Father sends the Son and the Son comes. I love Christmas. I mean, in spite of the pagan pageantry that you guys have made of it, thanks for nothing, but, but I love the message of the incarnation. That God the Father, though the Son is seated at his right hand, the Son pours himself out, makes himself nothing. And when God the Father says, I send you, he says, and I go. And I go to get strugglers like you and strugglers like me. We can't even begin to understand the mystery of the Trinity. We just believe it. It's magnificent. If I try to explain it for more than a couple of minutes, I'll likely commit a heresy of some sort, and you'll have to tie me to a post outside and set me on fire, and I'm told that's frowned upon in some contexts. Um, we do it all the time, Johannesburg, just by the way, um, but, but I'm told it's frowned upon here, but, but it's such a complex issue that you're, you're prone to heresy if you try to describe the Trinity, but one of the things we do know about the Trinity is that it is an eternal community, a three in one, and that eternal community, one of their defining features is their own mission, a community of sending and a community of sentness. The Father sends the Son, the Son goes. The Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit goes. John 15, 26, he says, I'm going to send you another counselor, the Father, and I will send him. And it's going to be better for you that he's here than, than if I'm here in the flesh. Two big ideas to take away. Here's what I want to get in your head. Two big ideas to take away 
from this missional nature of God. The first is we serve a loving and awesome and compassionate God who came and got us. You didn't get him. He got you. You might go like, well, I put my hand up in a service. Well, what brought you to that service in the first place? And what opened your heart to the message of God? God came and rescued you. That's what he does. This is the meta-narrative of scripture. God busting into people's lives and saving them. What do you think about when you think about God? Most people, even Christians who have been walking with God for a long time, don't think of God's gracious saving. They think of some kind of karmaic performance that we need to put on in order to keep God pleased with us. And when we fail, we hide away from him as if our performance tips the scale of whether or not he accepts us. But the meta-narrative of scripture is that you've got a bunch of fallen people and God really reaches down and saves them in spite of themselves. He does it with a pagan Iraqi called Abraham, who's worshiping the moon when God saves him. He's not looking for God. God comes and grabs him. He turns Abraham into a great nation, the nation of Israel. What's the purpose of the nation of Israel? Be a blessing to the surrounding nations. He sends them, he saves them and he sends them. They don't listen and so what does God do? He sends prophets. You see how gracious our God is? He doesn't go, oh, okay, I'm done. He sends prophets to warn them and to rebuke them and to point them again to the fact that they're sent nation. The prophets get killed and shunned. And so God sends his son. His son gets killed and shunned. And so God sends his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is then breathed into the church and then God sends the church. He's ascending God, grabbing people who have no desire to follow him based solely on his grace and his grace alone. I love what this says about our wonderful God. Listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Every other religious worldview or ideology has some kind of ladder you gotta climb. It's either, it's either kind of karma, which means you gotta, you gotta perform to a certain level at which point God accepts you, or it's kind of zen, at which point you have to get to a certain form of enlightenment, you have to do a perfect double eagle or something, um, and you can get into a moment of zen in which you can escape this flesh, and then God accepts you. Only the gospel speaks of a God who stoops low and reaches down to people who have no desire to reach up to him. It's an astonishing thing to consider. All right, but it's double-edged. It's double-edged. We go, oh, we love grace. But grace is double-edged. Grace says that you need grace because you're a disaster, right? I don't know you, but you're human. So I've met enough of us to know that most of us are disasters. I know myself, pretty disastrous. And so I need grace. And so grace should humble me. It should speak of the fact that I need saving. Friends, do you know what a miracle your salvation was if you're a Christian? Do you know what? Some people go, oh, I've got a boring testimony. Hogwash. No one has a boring testimony. Everyone has a testimony of resurrection. How, how does Paul describe salvation? He doesn't describe it as becoming better, putting up my hand while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. He describes it as being raised from the dead. You were dead, now you're alive. That's why you get baptized. Baptized into Christ's death, lifted up into his resurrection life. That's what it looks like. Paul uses this language all the time. We were members of the dominion of darkness. How many of you, when you read Paul and he says, you were once members of the dominion of darkness, you think like, that's a bit of an overreach. This dude's just intense. And by the way, dominion of darkness is the best name for a death metal band, and I've taken it, okay? And so, it's, but Paul says, 
hey, you weren't like a semi-okay person who became better through the gospel. You were a citizen of the dominion of, the, of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of the son he loves. That's what happened at your salvation. But we forget it. And so we aren't unenthusiastic about the mission of God because we forget that the mission of God had to do some supernatural stuff to reach a wretch like me. I got saved when I was seven. Christ saved me. Amazing moment. My dad preached the gospel. I was the majority of the congregation. Um, and so uh, we were in a little conservative brethren church. And so you take the kids along because then, you know, it's revival. Um, and so uh, I was seven years old. It was a rainy February night 30 years ago. And I got home and I was deeply convicted of sin. Now, what kind of sin? I was seven. I wasn't into human trafficking. I wasn't like on methamphetamines. I wasn't committing fraud. I was seven. But I was a selfish, wretched sinner and I knew it in a moment. God reached down and saved me, took me from the dominion of darkness, transferred me to the kingdom of the son that he loves. How many of us, we actually really struggle with awe and wonder in our faith. We have moments, the band leads, they play the E minor, it goes to the sixth and everyone's like, oh, the spirit descended. Maybe, or you just got totally manipulated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's either or, okay? And so, <laughs> the, maybe. But then on a Monday, Tuesday, it's difficult, right? To have this awe, this zeal, this fervor for God. And how many of us really struggle to share our faith with others in a vibrant and compelling way? Behind that, there's probably the fact that you haven't thought deeply enough about what you have been saved from. Because when you think about that, you're full of zeal. A band can suck, you wanna sing. You can be stuck in a commute, you wanna praise, why? Because look at what God has done for me. He's raised me from the dead. I doubt Lazarus needed to be persuaded to evangelize. The second he had had a shower, he's telling everyone, I was dead, now I'm alive. That's great news. Well, Christ's done the same thing for you. God has called you out of the tomb. That's what he does. But you need to know that if you're gonna wanna be sent by him on mission, all right? So first thing, Christians on mission know that they serve a God on mission. Secondly, let's look at it again. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christians on mission know that they are sent by God. They are sent by God on that great mission. So so what does this great mission look like? What does it mean to be sent by Jesus? Well, let's look at how he explains it. Again, the resurrected Christ giving the great commission to the early church. Now, don't glaze over. I know a lot of you are young in here, but I also know a lot of you have grown up in church. So you probably know the great commission. You've got it on a Bible cover somewhere, or you've got it on a coffee cup, or on a, a map of the world somewhere behind your bathroom door, all right? And you're like, I know the great commission. I know you know the great commission, but if we believed the great commission, then more disciples would be being made. And so let's not just know the Great Commission, let's know the Great Commission, okay? So look at this. This is the purpose statement of every church on the planet. Churches don't need another one. They don't need a hip, trendy one that fits on a website. They need this one. This is the one they need. Every Christian on the planet, here's your divine purpose. If you're sitting here going, I don't know what I'm made for, this is what you are made for, all right? Look at this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him but some doubted. Don't you love that that's put in there? I love that Matthew put that in there. Some doubted. How many of you are going, 
hey God, if you would just pitch up in an amazing way, if you would just intersect my life, do something incredible, okay? If you bring me a partner, if you take away my partner, if you get me a parking space when I'm late, if you help me pass this exam I haven't studied for, whatever it is, if you come through in a miraculous way, I'm yours. You know what's wrong with that? It's just not true. The disciples here see the resurrected Christ. I don't know how much more wow factor you get than that. And some of them are like, nah, I don't know. I don't, I've seen David Blaine do a very similar thing. And, and so some of them doubt. And look how Jesus treats them. He doesn't cast them out. Look what he does. Sends them on mission, the doubters, the wrestlers, the strugglers. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why he can send strugglers on mission because all authority is given to him, not to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The main verb there, the master verb in that sentence in the Greek is make disciples. That's the big idea of the church. That's the big idea of Christianity. It's the purpose of your life, not to create disciple-making agencies, but to collectively, as a church, make disciples, to take people from no faith to faith, to take people from little faith to more faith, to take people from low obedience to higher obedience, to take people from self-obsession to multiplication. Go, make, baptize, teach. It isn't done yet, and so there's work to be done, and so the mandate extends to each of us. This is your purpose. Go, make, baptize, teach. You see how it speaks of movement in the Christian life? You can just personalize this for a second. You're supposed to move. Disciples become more like their master. You're supposed to become increasingly like Christ. Becoming mature is what it means to make disciples more like their master. Is that happening in your life? Maybe it's not happening in your life because you're not doing it for others, because you're not fulfilling this great call on your life. You are sent, think about it, on divine assignment. I can't see a Christian exception to this. Jesus doesn't say, okay, Peter, you've got to make disciples. The rest of these Muppets, they can't do it. All right, we've got James and John. They're the sons of Boanerges, okay? They're the sons of thunder, which is the coolest bowling team name I've ever heard in my life. They're the sons of thunder. They're bad news. They've got bad temp issues. Matthew, he's a tax collector, so he's shady as anything. Um, we've got Simon the Zealot, so he's an angry guy with a weapon. Um, and so we want to just kind of exclude him a little bit. Peter, you're going to have to do it in spite of the fact that you're terrified of a teenage girl, but everyone's scared of teenage girls, to be fair. So, so you go do this thing. No, he says to all of them. There's no exceptions to this rule. And so Spurgeon was right. When Spurgeon said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. That's it. Those are your two options. It's not, should I make disciples? It's just, are you doing it effectively currently or are you living in rebellion? Those are the two things. All right, enough shoddy shoddy. So what? So if I'm persuaded that God came and got me and I'm persuaded that he sends me, what am I supposed to do? So I'm a really practical kind of hands-on guy. And so I've got some practical implications for you. There, there, there could have been tons more, but, but here's the ones that have really been impacting my wife and, and I as kind of life at the moment. We're saying, if God came and got us and if God then sent us, what does this mean? A few things, here's the first one. Firstly, life must have a sense of purpose and divine adventure. You don't need to seek it outside of the church because the church is, is the most exciting agency in the world because Christians have the highest purpose in the world. And so even here, even now, your life has purpose and divine adventure. 
everyone wants to be part of some grand drama. That's why superhero stories exist. That's why every major narrative plot is exactly the same. There's an unlikely fallen hero who struggles and who strains, but who is needed and called to take the great message of redemption to save the nations. That's the the storyline of every great narrative. Why? It's the biblical storyline. Christ is the great hero. And he sent out a battalion of fallen heroes who are struggling to come to terms with their own brokenness, but who get this great endeavor to save the nations. That's an incredible thing to be part of. We all want the unlikely scenario that our lives can count for something, millennials especially. We need our lives to matter. Well, they do matter. If you do this, if you do this, we get to partner with God in the greatest drama on earth. And so you can't, friends. You can't be on God's great mission to redeem the world and be bored with your life. Social media and Pokemon Go show that we're pretty bored. We're pretty bored. Why? We're not participating in God's great redemptive plan. There's no boredom in that. Take the nations, preach the gospel, disciple people, live for the purpose that Christ called you in the here and now. Can't be bored and do that. Next one, there's no distinction between secular and sacred. There's not some Christians called to to mission and others not. There's not some activities that are missional and others that aren't. There's no such thing as Sunday Christianity or accommodating the gospel in a way that fits. It either owns you, either you've been resurrected from the dead or you haven't. And if you've been resurrected, it takes all of you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says that we can eat and drink and do anything in the world for God's glory and renown. There isn't a single part of our lives that this mission doesn't push into. And so we don't need to create missional activities. We need to live missional lives with this front and center in our mind. I'm sent by God on divine assignment for his glory and his renown. Sent by God. Next one. Christians become cultural infiltration agents and not cultural evacuators. I grew up in a very conservative church in South Africa, and I grew up believing that we needed to be evacuated from the culture because culture was icky and was getting increasingly icky. When Christians do this, they become increasingly weird and unattractive to the world. When we just gather in holy huddles and only face each other, uh, we don't offer anything attractive to the world. And our gene pool for those singles gets like remarkably shallow um, as well. And so we're, we're not called to be people who just, you know, circle the wagons and create a fire in the middle and live some kind of society in society where we run away from everything. If the church exists as an inward facing social club, this is the lamest social club in the world. There are better ones for you to partake in on a Sunday night. I could write you a list where the bylaws of those social clubs don't put any restrictions on the fun that you can have. This social club tells you there's a bunch of stuff you can't do. Why would you be here? It's a lame club. It's a wonderful mission sending agency, which is what it's supposed to be. Which is what it's supposed to be. Next one, our homes, they become mission stations. So where God has you right now, he may be calling you to somewhere else and I'd encourage you to listen. If you get even a whiff of go somewhere else, listen. right, listen, find someone you can talk to, listen to the voice of God. But if he's got you in Austin right now, he's got you in Austin right now for a reason and for a purpose. Acts 17 says that God oversees the times and the places in which we live and the boundaries of of our land, all of that sort of stuff. 
where you live matters and how you live there matters. You are put here right now for a reason and that reason is to glorify Christ. If you aren't gonna get going to the nations with the message, you better get going to Austin with the message. And Christ has probably gifted you some kind of living experience in which you can use that to bless other people. I'm kind of an introvert by nature. It's weird, a lot of preachers are. And so when I'm done preaching, I like preaching, I like speaking to people like this. I don't like getting down there and speaking to people like that. Um, and so uh, what will happen is I like to retreat to my home from the world away from the mission. I've got four people who are allowed to live in my home. That's including me, me and three others, Sue and my two kids. And I like to lock the door and then no one else is allowed in. The nice thing about living in Joburg is that we've got electric fences and alligators in the moat and you know laser assault missiles and uh, drones that drop God dogs down from the heavens. And so I know once I get in there, I can, I can shut myself in and no one else gets in. That's not how God called me to live. He says, I've placed you in Johannesburg right now for a purpose. I've given you a dining room table. It's not a fancy one, uh, but I've given you one. Will you use that to make disciples of other people? Well, will you start at home, but will you call other people into that space? I don't care if it's a dorm room or a mansion. God has gifted you with something right now. You should use it right now as a mission station next one our money our money becomes mission ammunition there's a lot of ways to get money out of churches most people use guilt i love going to this one every time we open our wallet to give we take big shots at the gates of hell and you guys pay for the bullets it's an amazing thing every time i'm, I'm freeing myself from the love of money and i'm paying for satan to get shot up that's an amazing thing i'll pay for that any day how much you need i hate that guy he should get shot up a lot Next one, it's been a long day, so. <laughs> our work, our work becomes missionary assignment. Whether that's a nine to five job, whether that's you're currently a student, that becomes a missionary assignment. God has appointed you to that. Now you start that assignment by being the best worker or best student that you can be. The last thing that the world needs is another Christian slacker telling their office about Jesus. What they really need is a bunch of people who contribute to the environments that they're in and then tell people about Jesus. We live in an increasingly post-Christian society and so your office or your university is really an unreached people group of sorts. You're not there just to survive. You're there to make disciples. And then lastly, our community, our friendship groups, our church family, becomes a mission alliance. Christian community should be a place not just to be weird together, but to fire each other up for the mission field. In Mark 3, Jesus redefines family. He says, you know who's my mother and you know who my brothers are? They're the people who push me towards the will of God. That's what Jesus says. And his mother's standing at the door. That must've been a deeply offensive thing to say. She's like, what? All right, and he was like, seriously, woman, I love you, but listen. Those who push me towards obedience to my father, that's my new family. And as Jesus does that, he redefines church family. Now, what have we made church? A, a, a seller of religious goods and services. And we can buy some and reject the rest. Just don't make it inconvenient for me, Austin Stone. I'd like to come on a Sunday. I'd like to listen to your band, especially when the right band is leading. And if you have the right preachers preaching, I'll come along to those. And I'd like to take from that. Don't ask for anything back from me. That's not church. Church is supposed to be a family. 
where, where people are pushing each other towards the purposes of God? Have you lined yourself up in church community in such a way so that people push you towards Christ and you can push other people towards Christ? You know what you're gonna need to do to push other people towards Christ? You're gonna need to know them. That takes time. That takes humility. That takes conversations. That takes sacrifice. That's church. That's church. All right, verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Last observation. So we've got to believe in a God who's on mission. We've got to believe that that God sends us all on mission. And then Christians on mission depend deeply upon a supernatural, powerful Holy Spirit for supernatural results in mission. Acts 1, Jesus warns the early church, don't go anywhere, fools. Don't, don't, you're going to mess it, right? You're going to have to go to the nations, but don't go now. Wait till you've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to need to fill you. Oh, I think I was going to mess this thing up. Jesus says, without me and my power, you know what you'll accomplish? Pfft, nothing. I fear that's exactly the result many of us are getting in our disciple-making endeavors right now. Nothing. Why? We haven't humbly bowed the knee and said, Holy Spirit, unless you send me, I can't go. The disciples go from a motley crew of nobodies to brave church leaders who turn the world upside down, the New Testament tells us. What's the difference? They get filled with the Holy Spirit. God loves using nobodies to turn the world upside down. That's all he's got to work with. And so he would love to breathe his spirit into you again. He says he's a good father who loves to give the spirit to those who ask. He's got to ask. Loves to give that gift. Now, how many of us, when we talk Holy Spirit straight away, we're thinking, oh, am I going to have to speak in tongues? Um, are there going to be flames on the wall? Well, well when I see the, the Holy Spirit poured out into the early church, there's a whole bunch of supernatural things, but there's also supernatural witness. There's supernatural boldness. There's supernatural ability to persevere in suffering. The Holy Spirit sends them in an incredible way. And he's gonna need to send us if we're gonna make a dent. I think many of us, just listen, I'm nearly done, I promise. I'm gonna get out of here. You won't even, I'm gone. I think many of us don't have a real felt need for the Holy Spirit because we aren't really currently attempting anything that we can't do ourselves. So it's been a while since we've been face down on the floor asking the Father to pour the Holy Spirit into us because to be honest, we haven't really attempted to do anything that we need Him for. If we as Christians only accomplish what we can do, that'll be the lamest outcome ever. All right. Some of you don't have this grand mission and purpose. Why? You're not Christians. It's okay. You can become one still drowning you can't fix you you don't even know it what you don't need is religion you don't need to get better you need a savior and your savior loves broken people like you you reach out you cry out for jesus he'll save you he will save you he'll reach down into your mess and save you you simply just cry out to him turn from your ways he'll save you if you are a christian god has called you i say that without a shadow of a doubt god has called you to glorify him by partnering with him in his great mission in your day and age. That's not pressure. That's not another thing a preacher's yelling at you to do. Okay, now I've got to make disciples too. Oh, that's purpose. That's joy. You get to make disciples. You get to participate with Christ in his great endeavor in the world. He does all the work. He gives all the power. 
You just got to say, here I am. Send me. The real question is, what do you think your life is for? And what do you think your salvation is for? If it's for you and your comfort, then you're good. If it's for him and the ever-expanding kingdom of God, then come on, church. Get about his work. If just a few of you, I look around this room, my gosh. If just a few of you, in just a moment, just get this. And just say to the Lord, Lord, send me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Just a few of you, the gates of hell tremble at the thought. Father God, thank you so much for your word. You are so kind. You are so merciful and you're so gracious. And in your grace and in your mercy and in your kindness, you call us away from our own folly towards something much better. And so Lord, forgive me, forgive us, forgive the church for making so much of our salvation and our Christian experience about us and about our own comfort and our own desires. Lord, call us to something bigger. Call us to something better. Lift our heads, Lord, today. And let us once again return to that great mission and purpose for which you saved us at great cost to your son, at the cost of his life. He opened up a way to a new life and the truth is most of us are saying, no, thank you. Gosh, I pray tonight we would receive that offer of life. We'd receive it. And so Lord, I pray for those in the room tonight who, who aren't yet children of yours. Maybe they've even been in church a ton. They've never got to the end of themselves. They've always thought that you were like a, like a topper rapper, like a nice to have. I pray that you would realize that you're everything and that they need you and that they can't fix themselves. I pray that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they would be honest with that and that your Holy Spirit would give them faith to simply grab your hand. You're the one doing the reaching out. I pray that they just grab your hand. If that's you tonight, you can do that, man. If, if God's opening your heart, just, just respond to him. And I wanna pray for the rest of us, those of us who are followers of Christ. I don't wanna rush this moment. I feel like God gives us these moments in, in which to humble us and commission us and send us. And so if you're here tonight and this thing rings with you, it resonates with you, maybe we can spend a couple of minutes just praying this together. Why don't you just pray this with me? Father God, you saved me. You sent your son to save me. Now send me to make disciples of others. I won't go unless your Holy Spirit is poured out into me. You're a good father. You love to give good gifts. Give me your kid, the gift of the Holy Spirit and then send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. In Jesus' name we pray.